If you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at a story in Mark chapter 6. So you can turn to Mark chapter 6. And as, as you do, I want you to use your imagination. So see if you can imagine this scene. Uh, there's a little boy. He's at the store. He sees a piece of candy. He wants it. Mom will not let him have it. So he flops on the ground. He pitches a fit. Mom's embarrassed. She becomes annoyed. The boy's crying. And the devil's laughing. Imagine this. There's a teenager who wants to go out, go out to a party. Mom won't let him go to the party. So he stomps. He stews. He fumes. He gives them the silent treatment and fills the house with tension and anger. No one's speaking and the devil's laughing. Or imagine the father has come home from a long day of work. He gets home. All he wants to do is watch TV in his chair in peace. The kids are all bouncing around, uh, giggling, laughing, saying all types of things, wanting his attention. He snaps. The kids cry. And the devil laughs. And I wonder how often you kind of use your imagination and uh, kind of do a thought experiment like C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It's kind of a thought experiment where the, the plot is there's a senior demon who's mentoring a junior demon about how to tempt and destroy his patient. And he's kind of riffing off the idea, well, if it's possible we have guardian angels, what if we have tempting demons? So, I mean, any of you seen Tom and Jerry? You know how the angel pops up on one shoulder, the devil on the other? That kind of idea. And actually, C.S. Lewis said it was so wonderful when he finished that book because the mental thought of trying to embody the demonic did, did bad things for his soul. But I wonder, you just think about, all right, I wonder how often we cause the demons around us to just giggle. I wonder if they just wonder, like, these people, even the mature and the, the godly ones, can be so easy just to derail I mean, you just give them a little traffic. You just have the coffee creamer they want, not in stock. You just have the computer, just not boot up, and it will derail their entire day. They're just so easy. And I don't know, why are we that way? I mean, the life is just filled with all types of little just irritants. I mean, your coworker doesn't stop clicking their pen, your roommate who slurps their cereal incessantly, the woman who's driving and she has nowhere to go and just assumes no one else has anywhere to go, the dog that doesn't stop barking, the kids who are constantly asking, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Like, well, what do we do with the irritants in life? Is it really that big of a deal? We've been doing a series in 1 Corinthians 13. So let's first pull up just that text, because what we're going to do in 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul gives us a whole series. It's, it's one of the most beautiful and poetic descriptions of what real love is. Paints a beautiful picture. And then right in the middle, he says there's a series of eight things that love does not do. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't, uh, or it's, do, it's not envy. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. And now some of those you can kind of get, all right, it's not rude. It's not arrogant. It's not boasting, but not irritable. I mean, come on, is, is being irritable that bad? And so what I just want to think about is why is this there? 
And so what we've seen in this whole series is that the, before we can express this kind of beautiful love to others, we have to first experience it from Christ. And he actually has been all of those things to us first. And then we express that uh, others. But why would a picture of cl- true love including, include not be irritable? So that's what we're going to look at. So in Mark 6, we actually have a story because what we want to do is we want to take each of these things and kind of show a picture of how Jesus is displaying what true love is. And so in Mark chapter 6, you have this beautiful story of where the disciples get really irritated with those around them and Jesus does not. So let's look at Mark 6 and kind of look at the story and we're going to see if we can learn a couple things, just how to detect irritability in our own heart. And then we're going to see a demonstration of, I don't even know what word, like what's the opposite of irritability? Not, so we're going to look at a demonstration of non-irritability. I think that's a double negative and doesn't work, but you get what we're saying. And then we're going to look at the destruction. How do we destroy it? So first, let's see if we can detect it. So pick up Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that he had, they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place all by themselves. Now many saw them going, and they recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. And when they went ashore, they saw the great crowd. He saw the great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like a sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? He said, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. And he broke the loaves. And he gave it to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. So let's look at the story. First, we want to look at it from the angle of uh, why did the disciples get so irritated with the people around them? So let's first think, all right, just what is irritability? So what is it? And what it is, this is not just a natural response to life's inconveniences. It's not just the ordinary response to life's frustrations. What we see, the reason why Paul includes that is because irritability actually um, is the opposite of love. It's not just a small way you complain, it's an active way we hate. And so this is, irritability is like a small internal virus that if it gets into you, it can destroy relationships and it can destroy you. It's a soul virus. You know, on the one hand, we've, you know, the world has almost shut down because there's this indetect, a thing that's hard to detect, uh, virus. I think if you catch it, it can kill you. And so irritability is like this subtle soul virus or soul cancer that can get in you. And it's, it's so hard to detect, but it can destroy you. It's a clandestine relationship killer. 
Now, some of the range of meaning in this word that you could translate what the word that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 13 has a whole range of meanings. You look at different translations. Some of them are more, uh, you know, kind of bring it out. Like you could translate easily provoked, could be easily angered. Love is not quick tempered. Love is not easily exasperated uh, or love is not grumpy and grouchy. Or love is not, uh, doesn't get ticked off easy, go into the tirade. You know, all those, those, that idea of always easily annoyed, aggravated, grumpy, grouchy. Why does it matter? Because in many ways, Satan's no, in no hurry to destroy you. He'll love to do it in one kind of climactic boom moment. Or he's happy just to give you a thousand little relational paper cuts. A little bit of irritability with this person, a little bit every day. He's happy to take 10 years to destroy that relationship that way. And so it, it matters because it it's a destroyer. Now notice who in this story gets so irritable. And Mark focuses, here Mark calls them the apostles in verse 30. It's good to remember. This is the 12. The 12 hand chosen by Jesus. The 12 sent out on his mission. This is the 12, and notice they've just come back. So look back in verse 7. Jesus has called the 12, and he sends them out two by two. So he sends them out. This is their first kind of mission, missionary journey, where they've been watching Jesus, and then he's trained them, and now he's sending them out to go and minister in the way he has ministered, and they've gone out. And then notice what it says in verse 12. They went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and they anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed him. You know, Jesus goes around preaching and teaching. He goes around defeating uh, evil. He goes around healing what's broken, and then he's empowered them to do the same thing. And this is the training training that he gives them that we saw in Matthew chapter 10, that long training manual for how uh, missionaries are to take the gospel out. They've come back. They've been away. We don't know, maybe a week, maybe a month. They've been on kind of their first missionary journey, and it's been a tremendous success. Like they come back and they have seen and done amazing things. Like we preached and people came. We anointed and people were healed. We cast out demons. We've seen and done amazing things. And when they come to tell Jesus in Luke, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning when you were going out. Amazing. And so, you know, they come back and you can just imagine they were men. They just had success. How are they feeling? Probably pretty good about themselves. Come back strutting a little bit. Uh-huh. You should have seen us. I don't know what you've been doing while we were gone, but we, oh boy, we got to tell you about it. And so they've just finished this great success. And that should just kind of give us pause because it's like, all right, if the disciples, the apostles can fall this way, every one of us is vulnerable. Satan will attack every one of us this way. Because in many ways, the irritability is just the practical outworking of the proud heart. We're not arrogant, not boastful, not insisting on our own way. Irritability often fires up when we're not getting our own way. So the disciples, they're the one who struggles with this. But notice when. When are they particularly tempted to be irritable? So they've just come back in verse 31 from a long trip, so they're tired. It's been a long several weeks, maybe, long week, long time. They're tired. And as you notice uh, how Mark includes that, they come back. Jesus wants them to go away. Come away by yourselves. But they can't. They can't get a lonely place. And they don't even have time where they can eat. I mean, you've heard the phrase being hangry. It's not new. They, they, they can't eat. They're tired. 
tired, they're hungry. And on top of that, their whole like last segment of their life was all about giving. They've been giving of themselves. They've been away from their home, away from their families, away from their occupations. They've been serving and serving and serving. And can we not get five minutes of me time, please? Giving of themselves. And then what happens? Irritability fires up. But now they're not the only ones who are struggling. It's interesting. Uh, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but Jesus has just found out about the death of John the Baptist. He's just heard these words. Jesus is trying to withdraw too. It's not just the disciples who need uh, to get away. He needs it. So he's just heard about this tragedy. Even he needs a time alone. Then Notice how it manifests itself in their life. Notice what they do in verse 36. You know, notice how kind of depersonal it is to others. Send them away. Now, I don't know if you're an introvert, extrovert, where you are on that uh, spectrum. I can relate with that, uh, that, that impulse. Send them away. Go away. And so they, they're pushing people. But this is people who are in need. People have come, they flock to Jesus because they are in need and they're distancing themselves. They just spent all this time serving, but enough's enough. Now they're pushing them away. And see, what irritability can, can do is it can cause us to stop seeing people as people, but start seeing them as problems. So this is a, this is a problem, not a person. Send them away. That's how it deals with others. But notice how they treat Jesus. Notice how they respond. Jesus tells them, you give them something to eat. And those, it's, I think it's a snappy, snarky, sarcastic, oh, really? You want us to feed them? Shall we go? It would take 200 denarii to feed all of these people. Yeah, you got that in your back pocket? Oh, okay. Yeah, good idea. How about you, you handle the preaching and teaching? We'll handle the logistics of this thing. And let me tell you, there's no way we could pay for that. Now, I don't know who brought up what it would cost to feed all of the people, but do you remember who the treasurer of the group was? Maybe it fired up and said, uh-uh, we can't pay for that. Maybe they did have 200 denarii. He just didn't want to spend it on other people. Who knows? But there's a snappy, snarky, sarcastic response. And then I love this. Jesus says, all right, how much food do you have and how much can they rustle up? Five loaves and two fish? Are you serious? I think they probably could have come up with some more food if they wanted. That wouldn't even have fed two of them, really. Maybe three. Is this it? This is the best you can do? And you all know how when you're in a situation where you're being told by someone above you to do something that you don't want to do and you think is a terrible idea and you weren't for it anyway, how energetic are you to just jump in and do that thing? Oh, you want us to feed them? That's a terrible idea. And let me show you it's a terrible idea by how bad I am at trying to obey what you've asked me to do. Five loaves, two fish, that's it. So what it calls, I mean, they disconnect, they disengage, and then they, in some sense, are offensive to Jesus himself. Now here, we want to pause, and I want you to think, all right, there's, think about your own life. So maybe actually pull out, you'll have to maybe do this subtly, but pull out your phone, or pull out a pen and a piece of paper. So get some way where you can mark, because you'll need to return to this in a few minutes, who are the people that cause you to be easily irritable? So who? And if they're sitting next to you, don't write their name really large right now. <laughs> so find some way to mark so you can think about them. 
Who are the people? And then what are the situations that cause your irritability to fire? What gets it going? Who are the people and what situations? Think about it. Find some way where you can return to that in a minute. So write it down or some marking. All right, so let's look at demonstration of non-irritability. So let's look at this scene and let's watch Jesus as how he responds. So first, I think it's a good idea, like who, what's going on? And so many of us have such false images about what's really happening in this scene. And I don't want to, you know, like ruin a VeggieTales image or the Jesus Storybook Bible. But we, we, we paint a picture of this seen as if it's like this Victorian, you know, you have these Victorian families in their knickers and bonnets and they have their picnic basket and they're like, oh, it's a jolly holiday with you, Jesus. Let's go have a picnic in the countryside and let's, you know, let's all sit out. That's not the scenario that's happening. They're trying to go into the desert. They're into the wilderness. They're looking for a desolate place where no one is and there's a lot of people there. Do you know why one of the reasons there would be a lot of people in the wilderness right now? Because the wilderness of Galilee at this time is a hotbed for revolutionary insurrectionists. This is uh, the reason why it's framed with the 5,000 in the groups of hundreds and fifties. Those are military companies and it's 5,000 men. It's we have this number of legions. We have 50 legions and we, and we have a whole uh, battalion of soldiers. This, the, the context here is of explosive unrest. I mean, to kind of feel like to mentally try and get all right, what, what was the energy that's going on in this world, like seen right now. Um, remember, they had just found out that John the Baptist was beheaded and the people loved him. And he was beheaded by Herod, who was supposed to be their political leader, who was supposed to be living and working on their behalf with the Roman government. Their political authorities had just beheaded one of their beloved leaders. Why? Because he was speaking truth to him. He was telling them what he was doing was unlawful and should repent. And he put him in jail and then executed him. So you imagine, like, what would the energy have been like? Like, to kind of mentally get there, I mean, go back to, I mean, say you're in Atlanta in, like, 1964, and you just heard that Martin Luther King Jr. has been thrown in a Birmingham County jail for speaking about something that's wrong, and he's in jail. And then several months later, you hear that while he was in jail, he was executed. And then now you're gathering in places. What type of energy is going on there? You're coming there. You're not on a jolly holiday picnic. You're there ready to fight, and you want something to be blown up. That's the atmosphere that he comes in. Jesus comes in, and he's surrounded by people who are dirty, they're ignorant, they're needy, and they're revolutionaries all around. So you have insurrectionists all in the desert at this point. You know what else you have? You have a whole bunch of tax evaders. You know, I think it'd be a, it'd be a funny, like, we're going to do like a podcast church history on just funny things that, I don't even know what to call it. But I'd love to do it like a church history segment on tax evasion. You know how many things like in life we have because of tax evaders? People going out in the wilderness, they're evading taxes. One of the great monastic movements, the monastic movement is one of the most profound discipleship movements in the history of the church. But a lot of people went to the desert to not pay to evade taxes. Do you love cheese? 
You know, one of the reasons we have so many wonderful cheeses that came from the continent of Europe is because in the feudal system, the lords are taxing milk. And so the dairy farmers say, okay, you tax our milk, we're going to make cheese. Tax evaders. That's who's all around here. It's insurrectionists. It's tax evaders. It's outlaws. People who are running from the authorities. And you know, Jesus is coming. And in John 6, they wanted to make him king. They're demanding something from him. They want to see somebody act. These are revolutionaries seeking a leader. I mean, even right now, you go out to like go to the Middle East right now and in the desert and they're revolutionaries who have gathered and they want a leader. What does that leader give them? I mean, normally you give them things like AK-47s. They're expecting weapons. So what does Jesus give them? Look what he does in verse 34. So Jesus had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he began to teach them. He opens up class and starts teaching. You wonder what they were thinking. Like, this is not what we were after. Like, we want grenades. We don't want a lecture. We need lunch, not a lecture. But he comes and he gives them to teach. They wanted something, someone who was going to free them from the impression they were under. They wanted somebody to feed them. But he actually comes teaching. He's given them bread for soul and body. Gives them his teaching. The gospel, the life-giving nature of this message. That's not what they wanted, but it's exactly what they need. And he gives them bread for the body, the miracles. It's an incredible miracle to illustrate what he came to bring. And there's this tremendous parallel of two kings. Herod, the wicked king, who with his banquet, it's marked by sensuality and self-indulgence, and it ends with slaughter. And here's another king who with his banquet is bringing life. So he then dis- distributes you know, complete dependence on God. He looks up into heaven and then notice uh, what he does here. I think we see Jesus just the perfect example of loving people who are difficult, loving people in a difficult situation who are dirty, who are demanding, who are seeking something from him and he's loving them. And then notice the third thing, just the destruction of this irritability. How do we destroy it? How can its power be broken in our life? Look what he does in verse, in verse 41. So he then commands them to have everyone sit down in groups on the green grass. I was letting you what time of year it was. Uh, in the spring. So they sat down in the groups by hundreds, by fifties, marking them in it's almost regimental formation. And then he takes the five loaves and the two fish. He looked up to heaven and he said a blessing and he broke the loaves and he gave it to the disciples to distribute. And they all ate and were satisfied. He looked up into heaven, he blessed, and then he broke. He blessed, he took the bread, he blessed it, then he broke it, and then he gave it. And this won't be the last time that we see him with the disciples blessing the bread breaking it and giving it to them. You look at Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, he gathers them around and then he, he takes it and he blesses the bread and he says, this bread is my body and he breaks it 
And then he gives it to him. What they wanted in Jesus, what the people wanted in Jesus was like this new conqueror, this new Moses who was going to liberate them from this wicked Pharaoh. But what they got actually was God himself who was going to liberate them from something so much worse and so much deeper. And then he blessed them. And so the dynamic is Jesus blesses them and then breaks. And the bread is not just bread. It's symbolic of his own body. And his own body was broken so he then could bless. And, and we now, his body was broken so that we can receive that blessing and then distribute it. I mean, I wonder what it would have been like for the disciples because they know all the people think it's the disciples who are distributing the bread. And I wonder how many people thanked them. Oh, thank you for this. Well, didn't come from me. I didn't want to do this. This wasn't my idea. And so Jesus, he blesses and he breaks. And just on the Lord's Supper, what we celebrate is his broken body was blessed so that we can, or broken so that we can enter in and experience the blessing. So really the way little irritations can poison relationships in a world, but the, the way you counter those little irritations are little acts of blessing. So think about what blessing is. So often we say a blessing, or if you're from the South, you know, you kind of have the term, you know, bless your heart. It's, it's not a compliment if someone says that to you. And so you think, all right, what is, what is blessing? What actually is it? But in the Bible, blessings are powerful things. It's why when Jacob de- deceives Esau out of his blessing, Esau panics and wants to kill him because this is a powerful thing where you're projecting, you're channeling. The, the goodness of the Lord is then channeled and projected out onto another. And so you're actively willing their good. And so when we say a blessing at a meal, we're we're saying that this is a physical, tangible demonstration of the goodness of God to us. You know, even when we say bless you when somebody sneezes, I mean, you know where that originated from? It originated from in times of plague where people would sneeze and they would say, God bless you because they knew that a sneeze on Monday could turn into a fever on Tuesday and you're dead by Friday. And so when they see, when you sneeze, they would say, God bless you, trying to channel the goodness of God to protect you and keep you safe. And so that's what blessings are. So now I want you to go back and think mentally to the person you wrote down or the situation that you wrote down. And what would it mean in that situation or with that person, instead of responding with irritability, what if you responded as a channel of blessing? Said, in this moment, I'm going to channel the goodness of God to this person. So one of the great priestly tasks was the ironic benediction, the blessing, where the priest, in God's name, puts a blessing on the people. May the Lord bless you. May his good flow to you. May he bless you and keep you. You think, all right, what would it be to kind of channel that? What would I say? You might think, all right, I want to be a person, of, uh, a person who blesses. And uh, maybe this could be like a New Year's resolution where you say, all right, I'm, realistically, I'm not going to lose 10 pounds. So let's try something else. What if I'm going to try to bless one person every day? That's just I'm going to try and channel. So I'm going to intentionally try and channel the goodness of God kind of in their direction. What might it look like? What do I even say? That every Sunday you hear a blessing a benediction. It's may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours this day, today. 
So those are living words, and the goal is to channel and funnel that his love, his undying First Corinthians type love will be yours, and you'll know it, and you'll live in it, and you'll feel it. And then his resurrection power by the Spirit can be yours. And there's nothing you can't overcome, and there's no way you can't change, and there's no victory you can't experience because his power is yours, and there's a hope that you have that can fuel you and encourage you and bring you through any moment. And no matter what you experience now, your best days are always ahead of you because you have a living hope. That's what it means to live under a, a, that blessing. And you say, all right, what if I just tried to channel a little bit of that to the person? So you have the exact same scenario. There's a little boy at the store and he sees a piece of candy, and he wants it, and his mother rightly probably won't let him have it, so he flops on the ground and pitches a fit, and the mother begins to become embarrassed and is so aggravated, and then asks, Lord, channel your love to me, and then help me channel it to him, so help me to know the patience and the kindness of your love and help them to grow into a place where they see your real love is not a love that insists on its own all the time, but a self-sacrificial channel that love. Or same scenario, we have a teenager whose mom rightly won't let him go to the party that he wants to go to and he's stomping, he's stewing, he's fuming. And then the mother asks now, instead of becoming aggravated and irritated, how can she channel the Lord's power? And say, Lord, channel your resurrection power into their life to help them overcome come and redeem these things that are trying to to snatch their soul. Or you have a father whose only hope is to come home from a long day of work and just sit in his chair and watch the game. And then he channels the blessing of the hope of a risen Savior to know that Christ purchased a rest for me. And my ultimate rest is not when I get at home to sit down. My ultimate rest is to enter into his presence just like that's a reflection of how their ultimate joy is to fully into the inter into the smile and the presence of their father. So instead of sitting down, I'm going to engage. And because of this hope, and right now, I'm not snapping. The kids aren't crying. And the devil is not laughing. But the kids are. And that's what it means to channel the blessing to us, from him, and then through us. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread And he said, this bread represents my body. My body is broken, so yours can be put back together again. So take and ask the Lord to help you to feel and know the truth and the power of that reality. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup represents forgiveness. It represents my blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Because this is the pathway into my presence. This is when you repent of your sins, you can have forgiveness, and then all of the blessings can flow from my Son through His Spirit down to you. So take and drink in remembrance of me. Lord, we praise You for Your Word. We praise You for the gift of blessing that can be ours through Your Son. And we ask that You help us. We confess that we are so easily irritated. And so we ask that You help us. We ask, I pray for the situations that came to mind when we were thinking about this. We ask that in those situations, you help us not to instinctively respond with irritations, aggravations, annoyances, frustrations. Um, Or when we do instinctively respond that way, help us to realize that that's the old man, the flesh, the sin that's in us, and help us to put it to death. And in those moments, help us to turn it.
to where it can be a blessing where we're channeling your love, your power, your hope. We pray for those people who can so easily annoy us. We ask that you help us. Help us not to do like your disciples do. And it's so easy. We're tempted to dehumanize people and just see them as problems. But help us to channel your love, your power, and your hope. All this for your glory and our good. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior will be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen.